so um yeah that this hat that i have on is it's caused you some trouble huh yeah well a little pre-mine going uh but <laughs> actually it's a part of the, it's a definitely a part of the bigger story we we um we made the hats for ourselves. uh we met up uh we were actually out in austin texas uh did a team meeting there and uh spent a couple of weeks there actually working and we got the hat samples in and we were wearing these hats and all friends, family, people on the streets even were like, where are you getting that hat? What's Twetch? You know, that hat's dope. And we're like, okay, wait, there's something here. We need to do this hat, but put it on the blockchain. Obviously it was our first thought. And then um, we started to, to think about what that process is going to be like. I gave it out to a couple of friends and family. So they're technically pre-mined hats. There's only yeah, a there's, few. There's no, Very there's few. no number. This is an unnumbered hat. Cause so I didn't, I didn't know about all this, you know, NFT that was in the works, but I remember sometime in like November, December. Yeah. One of you guys posted, or maybe the Twitch account posted, you know, we're doing a hat giveaway, check out this cool hat. And, uh, you know, and you had to like, like and branch or whatever. And I did. And then like a couple of weeks later, it was like, congratulations, Isaac Morehouse, the winner of the hat. And I was like, oh yeah. Cause I never win these things on Twitch. There you and go. You guys sent it to me, and I'm like, "This is like, this isn't like cheap swag. This is like a really quality." My, I, I have like four, four or five hats. I always wear hats, and my wife is like, "Oh, I like that hat. That's my favorite." She doesn't like any of the hats that I wear, but she likes my Twitch hat. So, cool. Yeah, good. So when I like posted a picture of it, my daughter actually was like, "Cause, cause she knows like about Twitch kind of, cause I've told her about it and whatever. You know, she's seen me on there." She goes, "Hey, I got." She was like, "I, I need ideas to earn more money, Dad." I was like, "All right." She's nine. She's like. I got an idea. How about I put on that hat and you take a picture and you post it to that place where people pay you money for your posts. And then you give me all nice. post gets. <laughs> and so I did. That's uh, just, smart. <laughs> just total, total, you know, she's, she's already going down the, you know, influencer marketing route, I guess. Um, anyway, but that was in like December. Well, then when you guys launched your NFT with the hat, since then I've, I've seen people be like, my hat hasn't arrived yet. What the hell? I saw Isaac wearing one in a video on Streamanity. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it does. It's not a good look. I'm not proud of it, but we had to make prototypes. So anybody who's watching this right now, it's just a part of the process. We had, we did have like a handful, you know, I don't know, five, 10, whatever uh, that we, the Twitch guys had. And then we had like an extra one. We, we did give away once we realized people are going to, it was sort of a proof of concept. We were like, well, do people want this? And then once we saw the reaction to the giveaway, we were really sure of it. So then we, we obviously knew the next step was putting on the blockchain. I mean, that's just, that's just what people do these days. So. Oh, I love that's it. That's what you we want, did. <laughs> you want people, you want your, your customers to be like notice and be upset and be like, wait a minute, how did he get one? Right. That's the good. Uh, well, that, so this is a good segue. So I've got a hat and it's just a hat. It's a Twitch hat. You know, it's probably a, if I would have bought it myself, it's probably a $20, $30 item at, at a, you know, custom swag shop. Why is it better to pay several hundred dollars to buy the same hat and then basically just post a receipt for the hat on the blockchain, which is which is my crude way. Now you guys designed cool little graphic spinny cards, but it's but it's an image, right? Why is that why is that so cool? What what am I missing here? <laughs> uh great question. I well, I first I personally have found this quite cool for some time. I I really early into my Bitcoin uh, journey, I found Pepe cards and uh, other counterpart, it was counterparty at the time. So it's basically token, building tokens on Bitcoin, uh, like color coin uh, protocol. 
And uh, I thought that was, that's definitely part of like what I thought was really fun about this Bitcoin thing is you could have these memes on the blockchain. Actually, the so whole hold on a second, hold on a second. I want to make sure I yeah. understand this correctly. A colored coin is, tell me if this is correct, because I think this is similar to what I've heard people talk about with STAS tokens, where you're actually taking a Satoshi or a few Satoshis or whatever it is, and you are designate, you are changing the data in some way. You're not creating a new token, but you're taking a Bitcoin token and changing the data in some way to say this one has these additional properties that make it not fungible like all the rest. It has something different. Is that an accurate description of a colored coin? I, I would, I think so. You know, there's probably some like really nerdy token guy out there right now cringing, but like okay. I, I, I would even generalize token. I think the better way to say it is a token is, is just like a, a, a sequence of digital signatures, like of ownership. And the actual difference, in my opinion, and I think what we're trying to really show off in Twitch is the amount of uh, energy or, or, or how difficult it is to go and find out the history of the ownership and prove that mm. that's the person who owns it. You know, it's like these lines of receipt. So without scanning the entire blockchain. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the, the thing that you're trying to get right with tokens is that you don't want to have to search the whole entire blockchain to like make sure that this person's supposed to be the owner of the token, right? But it's just okay. a chain of digital signatures, just like uh, Bitcoin says in the white paper, that's what a digital coin is. So it's just a way of kind of, um, you know, painting uh, in, in, the, in the context of a color coin or whatever, a token is like you're assigning, like you're just uh, putting some data on it that says, hey, that's the thing, that's that thing. And all these signatures show like the sequence of them, of uh, the ownership, and who's, here's the person that owns it now. And then they can go and, and trade that in a verifiable way, right? Uh, so it kind of eliminates the middleman. You have like, you don't have to do, like on Twitch, we have atomic swap. So when you buy the uh, NFT on Twitch or the fungible token on Twitch or whatever token on Twitch you buy, when you press buy, your Twitch wallet is paying for that. It's signing a transaction. And then that, that in that transaction, essentially, again, I'm kind of dumbing this down. Uh, you're just like, it's just the immediate, uh, instant exchange. So I buy the card and the Bitcoin goes to you and the card goes to me in the same uh, mechanism, yep. so to speak. Yep. So yeah, so, that's the, okay. that's the thing. So this, this will probably maybe help us parse this a little bit because there's one part of me that's like, Oh my gosh, I can see this opens up everything. And there's one part of me that's like, no, this is trying to apply something that's good in one area to areas where it's not very good. So, so let me back up a sec. Um, there's a pretty famous book, in a, and I think it oversimplifies the case somewhat, but uh, a very good book called The Mystery of Capital by a, a economist named Hernando de Soto. And he essentially is making the case that in, in a lot of these you know, third world countries and whatever, one of the right. major sources of poverty is the fact that title to property is illegible. It's too hard yep. to find. Nobody has it. It's unclear who owns what. And so because of that, you can build a house on a piece of property with unclear title, as long as no one kicks you out, but you can't go take out a business loan against that property because you can't prove that you own it. And so if you have Correct. clear title, clear, again, chain of ownership, right? Which is what you do when you buy a house, they check and make sure Correct. that there's not another bank that already has a loan on this house or whatever, right? You want to, you want to see that chain of ownership that it was justly transferred down the line so that you can sort of defend your, your claim. So saying, okay, great. Blockchain makes it a lot easier to apply that to a whole wide range of different types of goods. 
having clear title means you can do more economic activities with those, with those, you know, pieces of property. But then you step back and you think, well, what, what are we extending it to that you can't already prove ownership of easily? And there's some things, but there's some things where it doesn't matter. So let's take the, the mystery of capital idea. You go into these third world countries and now you help them set up some way to, to, to prove title to their land. Great, huge economic value. But then what if you're like, now we're also going to set up a way to prove that you have title to that cloud up there. Well, that's of no economic value because you can't, the, if, if the property right doesn't give you anything you can do with it to, to your advantage, then it's unclear to me the value. So that's a really long setup and I don't want to ramble, but it, it takes me to what Twitter just announced, this vSent thing where you can sell a tweet. And to me, this is what it feels like. It's like, hey, Josh, I've got an idea. I'm going to show you a picture of a tweet that I made. And then I'm going to have you send me some Ethereum. And now for the rest of your life, you have proof that you sent me some Ethereum. That's it. Yeah. I can yep. go delete the tweet. I can go, I can go do the same thing to somebody else. I've, you, you have basically just sent me money and all you have is proof that you sent me money. And I showed you a picture of something, but you don't have any, as far as I can tell, what did you gain by that besides a receipt? It's like, it's like having a, a concert ticket. I guess that's cool. I was a person that went to this concert and I paid for it. Here's my ticket. Some people like to collect that, but it's like, I, am I missing something here? Why is that, why is that a breakthrough? Well, I think the, um, I really liked your DeSoto uh, reference, by the way. I'm pretty, uh, I, a lot of this came with, inspiration from him, uh, guys like Patrick Byrne um, and Medici Ventures. Uh, if you're not familiar with them, check them out. Um, a lot of my journey was applied, like a lot of that vision uh, has affected my journey through this blockchain world, crypto world. So very, very good that you reference that. Uh, I would say that with, let's just kind of use the Twitch hat as the back prop here. Okay. The, your hat, okay, in a, in a perfect world, and we do this the way that uh, we're eventually going to do it, is a little bit different than we do it today. But what I can give you right now is say, look, this product that you purchased, it's verifiably scarce. You have a digital receipt. So basically you're, you have a license to this, this product you can prove. And it's in a way that if our database gets deleted, I can still have somebody else go and check. There's some pointer to that, that event, like you said. In uh, Bitcoin SV, uh, in, in this case, we can actually afford to put the data on chain. We mentioned all of Twitch's uh, tokens for like under a dollar. Like I'm talking uh, literally pennies. Okay. So the video and the image of the hat, that the stuff that we use to make the actual hat you're wearing, it's there and it's associated with that minting. So that's really interesting, right? Uh, you can even do things that we'd like to do more of in the future. So this is like a little bit of a sneak peek. It's a, it's a big journey to get to this, but having, even when you transfer the physical item, that like the ownership of it is of the digital item is built with is entangled with that because right now you can kind of get them separated. Well, it's a process, and and uh, we we've got some ideas around that. But that's the sort of goal of this is like you buy this hat, you buy this coin, you buy this trading card, uh, you have a digital version of it you can use in the digital world that's verifiable that it is associated, and you have a physical one too, uh, which I think is super important. You need to we need to have more things in the flesh. Uh, as we approach this, or we're going to kind of lose sight. It's going to be really uh, insignificant, as you kind of point out, the cloud. Well, the cloud is sort of like that Ethereum transaction. It's even worse 
because the Ethereum transaction doesn't even have the data in it. It just has a <laughs> transaction. So like, at least in our case, we've one up them very simply. It costs less, it costs near nothing. And we have the data itself, like the image and whatnot associated with the minting process, which is pretty cool. So- yeah. um, No, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, so I'm, 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 things are, are clicking here in some different ways, but so it sounds like right now, you have the way, to, the way that you're currently connecting in the case of the hat, the physical good to its digital representation and the, the data about it is the number stitched on the side. And that's sort of the best you can do right now. The number stitched on the side is unique to each hat and it's attached to that unique transaction. Perhaps in the future, there's some kind of trackable device. You've got an internet of things sort of yeah, situation totally, going totally. on. Yeah, yeah. you could do it like in a QR code. Yeah. Uh, you could do things like that. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like the digital component is kind of, you know, it's like if you have an item and you're, and you're trying to sell somebody on it, right? Value is subjective. And, and I say, it's not just this item, it's the story behind it. And I can try to sort of prove to you where this item sits in a broader context, or even in the supply of all items like that. And so you're able to do that. You're able to say this hat, here's data associated with it, that proves where this hat sits historically, its creation date, what number it is of the total supply. And it, and it adds a lot of value to it because it puts it in a broader context, right? Especially for collector's items, you wanna know where you are. You can have numbers on the side, but you can also have that verified in a way, you know, like if you went to an auction and bought a, a collector's item, you would basically be, you could, you could trust some third party certification that says this is authentic. But how much cooler yep. if you could look back at a hundred year history of the everything this thing has ever done and all the transactions it's ever yeah done. yeah the title titles have yeah. this and cars have this uh, some paintings have this um, I mean the the memory of it can be argued uh, disputed which is sort of the core thing that this blockchain can help with is that we have a little bit more of a distributed consensus on what that that signature is true and who that person was or whatever in this case if we're pointing out at a title right so. This is a very it, it, simple demonstration of that type of concept. Well, it's uh, cool like, too, because I'm thinking out loud here. I, I know I'm, I'm talking too much right now because I'm having the epiphanies that you've already had, I think. But I think it's, it, it's adding the value of not just proving the title and the history and the, the number of supply and all that, but it also, which is like basically giving a more efficient and stronger version of what you can do for some items, although it's too expensive to do it for smaller items um, with you know, deeds and titles. So it's like a, a data tracking, you know, information thing, but it's also turning that from a boring legal thing that you use only if you need to into part of the value itself. It's making it fun and entertaining. So like, you don't just have a transaction associated with each Twitch hat. It's like an animated, cool, it's part of the experience. So it's, it's emerging. It's like, it's like if you're, if the title you got for your house was like a one in a million hologram that like, you know, was some cool thing that was like fun to share, sure. right? You know, it's like, uh, so it adds some, okay, so it's funny. So it sounds like we're, there's really two types of things that people are calling NFTs out there. And they seem maybe very different to me. There's, there's something that's unique in that there's like unique data that's on chain. And it could even be a picture itself or potentially even a movie if you have enough, um, you know, ability to put, put something like that sure. on chain. And then there's, here's an item, digital or physical, and then send me some money. And now all we have is a receipt that you sent me money. And, and it's funny, 
it's so funny that Twitter is doing this. I mean, I'm sure it's not lost on you at all. They're like, you know, hey, you can buy this tweet, but you don't, you don't own that tweet. And just, just like the current user doesn't really own the tweet, right? Like Twitter does. They can delete it. They can monetize it. I can't. Yeah. It. I can. I can delete it, and that's about it. I can see the likes that come in. I can see the stats, but everybody can. Whereas each Twitch is an NFT. It's it's a transaction with data in it that I own. It's associated with my wallet, and every time someone interacts with it, I get money for it. Now, yep. I don't know that I can sell it. If I could transfer that ownership so that every time somebody clicked like on that in the future, the money went to you instead. Well, not of, yet. But that's what I'm thinking, right? Like, it's so interesting. Okay, so why why are people so excited about the NFTs that don't have any of those properties? Like what Twitter is doing, where you're, you're like, what am I well, missing I think, there? Is there something I, I cool think, about that? Um, Ethereum, well, Ethereum's done some pretty cool stuff with like the generative art where uh, basically you have like this set of values or genetics that this uh, crypto frog can have or whatever, or, and it like randomly creates this art, you know, it uses this subset of features and then it's like genetics, right? And then it like crunches a puzzle and then it creates, spits out this art. I think that's pretty interesting. It's basically like mineable tokens, um, something that we're going to see a lot of uh, in Bitcoin uh, and on Twedge. Um, just the ability to sort of have generative art, use your computer or create stuff, sell stuff. Like it could be as primitive or as advanced as you'd like. All There's a market for all of this. But uh, I think I think Ethereum, like how, the big meme of Ethereum is uh, it's the world computer. It can do everything, you know? And so the ideas get bigger there than they do like on BTC core where it's like you just use this and you hold this uh, digital gold. And Bitcoin SV is like, well, we're actually... Uh, uh, microtransaction, uh, in the internet enabled by microtransactions, we can also do all those other things too. You can just hold it and invest in it. You can also like, you know, create like computational markets and generative art and uh, funny uh, Pepe cards or uh, uh, stupid memes on the blockchain. Um, and uh, what we're going to see with Twitch is that's going to start to like actually develop. The hat for us, uh, I even talk about it now. I'm saying, look, there was like it was quite a process to get it down. Like we're just kind of looking at it from an operational perspective saying, let's do the test run. You know, we did it, so, website was online. It crashed uh, like an hour before we even sold the hats. It was up for 30 <laughs> seconds. All the hats were sold, crashed again, got back up for 30 more seconds. There was like two hats left there, whatever that number was, check the blockchain. But you can see sort of like the website crashes, people figure out how to buy it. Website crashes again, the, all of them sold out. I mean, we were up for 60 seconds maybe and the whole thing was, like a mess. And, we're, you know, so we looked at it from operational perspective. We're like, thank God we only did a hundred hats. We did it this way. Now we have all these new things. The Bitcoin method that we implemented uh, really worked well. There's no double spends. It was happened instantly. If you did get a purchase in, if you're lucky enough to be there early enough and you press the right buttons, you did get your hat. It was instantly deposited into your wallet the moment you made that transfer. Um, so all that stuff went really well. Uh, now it's about sort of getting onto the creative side. I think there's a lot of things that Ethereum I'll just pick on them because they're the most obvious NFT market right now. All the main ones are built there. They are missing huge opportunities. There's such a, uh, there's such a, uh, it's sort of the bigger problem on the internet is that you can't send a dollar for less than a dollar, right? Yeah. Whatever that, it, it costs a lot to send the dollar. You know, there's a fee, there's a bank, there's always something in between. There's custodial services, there's counterparty risk. And with BSV, we can actually like reduce the barrier. So again, now we can have one cent tokens. 
you can't do that on Ethereum. It costs 20 bucks to do one transaction. So that what that means for anybody watching this, I get this question a lot. What is a transaction fee? What's that mean on Ethereum? A lot of people don't know what that is because they only have Ethereum on like Robinhood or something, right? Well, what it means is that when I send my Ethereum to Isaac, there's a transaction fee. The computers go and settle that transaction. They do this work to make sure it's true and I have the money and then you get the money. And just like a bank works, there's people that do it instead in the bank and they put it in the database and then it works, right? Sometimes, and sometimes it's all digital. It's not so different. And actually the bank's more efficient and the, the Ethereum system works that way. It costs a lot to get A to B. Well, if you wanted to sell a piece of art for a dollar, it's literally impossible. It, 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 however, no, excuse me, it is possible. It would just cost you $20 to send $1 value of art. So the cost there, um, as, as, as good as it might be for sort of the high-end market where like that $20 for a $20,000 piece of art might not matter, the $20 for a $1 piece of art does matter. Um, and I think that we can have a large effect on the internet as a whole uh, looking at microtransactions associated with things like memes, where we have markets for memes. If I create a successful meme and someone sees it taking off, you could come and purchase that meme from me on Twitch and the revenue generated from that meme could be going directly to your wallet. It's all programmable. Twitch itself and with the system wouldn't even have a way to like stop you know, the money from flowing, so to speak, uh, as long as it's on our interface, of course. Um, it, the the idea is that um, we can't um, um, we can't stop you from buying that uh, that Charizard when you use our marketplace because we're not interfering or holding your money. Uh, that's between you and the buyer and the seller, right? Uh, we just provide the uh, the interface to do that. It's all Bitcoin behind the scenes, and now we're unlocking this whole new level of like we can start with pennies all the way up to the millions of dollars, like a, an Ethereum or a Counterparty or a bit, whatever. Uh, service you want to talk about that offers these NFT things, uh, we can do that. But now we can offer that on the low end too. And we can mint the tokens for really, really low fees. Because when you mint the tokens, it also includes a transaction fee uh, with on BSV. We can do it for just a, a less than a penny or, or whatever that, that is today. So, so in the case of something like a meme, talk me through how this because it's a, it's a non-scarce good. So let's say I buy a meme, you make a meme and you put it for sale in the meme marketplace. And it's a you know funny picture of a frog and, or a very serious, a very serious picture of a frog, we'll say. There you go. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I say, oh, I love that. I wanna buy it. Now I buy it, I pay some BSV and now you know I have record, I have ownership of this and, and the data, you know, the, the image itself is, is on the blockchain. Now, if I post that up to, I can resell it. If I post it up to Twitch or whatever, if people like it or engage with it, if they share it, I get money. But somebody can just do a screen cap of it. And now they've got the same image and now they can go and post it to the blockchain themselves or they can, they don't even need to post it to the blockchain. They can go use it. That non-scarcity component with things like digital art, how do you overcome that challenge? Doesn't that diminish the value of me having ownership of that thing? Well, you know, if that that's that's really the there's knockoffs of everything in life. That's not just a digital thing. You can yeah. get a knockoff iPhone, right? Um, it's never going to sell as good as the original. That's generally what's going to happen. Uh, it's definitely possible people can steal your stuff. It's always possible. Theft isn't very cool on Twitch. If you started stealing memes on Twitch, I don't think you'd do very good financially. Just going to throw that out there. Um, it's always possible. There's there really cool like. Plan. 
there you go. You're, you're just going to get wrecked is what's going to happen. You're going to get a lot of troll tolls and uh, you're not going to have very valuable uh, reputation on this market, right? And reputation means a lot. So like that's the same reason why Apple versus uh, a knockoff uh, is apples are going to sell better every time. There's but, trust. But how would you? Okay, so I, I get your. I totally get your logic. And like, like you can go buy knockoff Nikes in you know Mexico or whatever. There's a market for those, but it's not nearly as as valuable as the market. Or even in in an in arena with no intellectual property rights at all, like uh, cooking industry. Why do brand name chefs books sell for way more oh, money? Great example. Copies the recipes because there's a value of that brand name. There's trust, right? You, it's fine. It works, even though it's easy to to rip off. But that I guess I'm trying to understand how do you attach, how do you attach, so like, is there something that you can do to the meme itself so that when someone sees it, they can instantly recognize that it's the name brand version versus the cheap knockoff? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, well, you, you, yeah, sure. Uh, well, um, and a nerdy answer would be you hash the data. You know, you, you can, we can do things that are verifiable uh, within the image itself that, that can say that's the original yeah. Um, and if somebody uses another version of it, you could even get really clever and detect that. How do you think Facebook knows when you're going to post a Donald Trump meme and they stop you from that? Yeah. They have image recognition. Now that's a kind of a different topic. I, yeah. I want to stay on your point and like okay. keep it kind of simple. Yeah, it's yeah, like sorry. the, the idea, the idea of the idea of like the meme knockoffs and so on is going to happen. Uh, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't even try to take a stance that it wouldn't. I would argue rather that, um, these types of things are going to just increase the value of the original itself. Mm. It's the same thing like a print of an Andy Warhol uh, that's on the, my wall. I can't buy the real Warhol, but the fact that a million people have that print uh, adds more liquidity or uh, you know backprops the value of the the ten million dollars. Is that a Warhol. is that an original uh, MC Escher behind you there? That is an that's a that is not an original. Uh, I think that's Escher, Escher right? There. It's a little crooked, I think. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's it's not right, and that that um, that I think um, uh, becomes pretty uh, apparent that the value of this artist and the art that we're talking about is actually more valuable because we were talking about it in the first place, or it's being seen. You're doing or, you're uh, doing marketing for them, right? You're doing marketing for them. Yeah. Now I'm not arguing like stealing people's stuff is a good idea, uh, but generally speaking, you're just not going to really be able to like. What, what you want to do is create a system that incentivizes good behaviors over bad behaviors. Instead of trying to stop, constantly stop bad behavior, you just offer a better incentive mechanism for original creation. That's a big part of like what we're thinking about at Twitch is like, okay, original stuff, even if it's not, not perfect in the beginning, we want to make it original. You know, we could have issued a crypto kitty, but that wouldn't have been that cool, you know? And maybe we might issue some cats on the blockchain, whatever we want to do. But the idea is like coming up with some some kind of original take uh, and pushing a little bit further in terms of how this stuff can be done. I obviously believe there's going to be a big market in the sort of streetwear and physical item that crosses over to the digital item, whether that's a trading card, whether that's a hat, whether that's a piece of art, that's going to be really big. But ultimately, the solution is good incentives. That, that's a solution to most problems in life, and especially when yeah, it comes yeah, to no. like content and, and digital art. And, and as you're talking about this, you're, you're, you're helping me see this a little bit differently. So in the case of memes, the, you know, the NFT idea or tokenization, you're not, you're not changing the entire market for memes and putting, and putting, um, you know, completely strong property rights that can never be, you know, broken and, and scarcitization around every single, 
you're, the meme market basically stays the same, but you're adding one ability that you don't currently have. Like imagine the whatever, whatever is a popular meme. I don't know. I'm really old. So I like the really old memes like uh, like bad luck, Brian or whatever, you know, the ones with the like picture. Of the, so imagine that marketplace is just like it is now. Anybody can blah, 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 except you are able to find who was the first person to make that meme. And if you want to purchase their first version ever from them, you can. All the knockoffs are still out there. Everybody can still do the, but it, it just adds something you don't have. So right now, if you create a meme, oh. everybody steals it and it goes all around and it gets shared. And there's no way to ever prove that you created it in the first place or do anything special with that. Now you create a meme, you put it on a, in an NFT, everybody steals it, it spreads around, all the same stuff happens, except you still retain the rights to that first one that you created and provability. And that, if the meme becomes popular, will have exactly. some value. It's just some value that, you know, it's not going to be the only one. You're not going to be a monopolist who can sue everyone who uses your meme, but you are going to have something special and unique collectible. No, the, the, this, the system, the, system uh, the, the way this would work in reality is that you would be very... Uh, it would be very uh, adversarial, very bad for you in terms of your uh, your return on this meme. If you started like hating on the fact people use the meme, it's like instead the original creator of like the Pepe or the Mickey Mouse, uh, they, they have the original one they made, say that's an NFT. And then everyone takes screenshots and posts that everywhere. And it becomes a super awesome meme and cartoon or whatever. That original piece uh, is going to be worth a lot. Just like if you had the original sort of drawings of a comic book or the yep. original script to a movie, yep. um, you know, people could, could do many variations of that. They could even make replicas of the movie that happens all the time, but the original script is what's becoming more valuable every time that happens. Yeah. So it's focused more on that. That's like, that's, it's more solution oriented than problem oriented, right? In yeah, terms of like, like uh... what you can do. I, I've got a Gadsden flag hanging in my basement, right? The old don't tread on me. And imagine imagine you had the provable first version of that that was ever created, which I used to live in Charleston, South Carolina, where Gadsden lived, who created that, supposedly. Every time somebody like me gets a $10 Gadsden flag on Amazon, whatever that first version sitting in the museum, its value goes up and up and up because this becomes more famous and that original has a, a greater impact on culture. Correct. So this is interesting. I was thinking about thinking about some other applications of this. Just earlier today, I was talking with my marketing team and we were, we were talking about some fun little marketing stuff we might do with the website Cameo, where you can pay kind of B-list celebrities to send yeah. you a, a video. Yeah. And it just occurred to me like, you know, these people are going on there, they'll record a video for you for whatever their price is. Um, and then you get that video and I'm sure they have some terms of service and things like that. I don't know if they'll let you resell it or whatever, but Imagine the ability to not, you know, to not necessarily, you can wait for on demand, but to, for those celebrities to create little videos, whatever they want and post them. And I mean, they could even do them by name, right? Like pick a name that's common, you know, Hey, happy birthday, John, whatever, post it up. And it's an NFT and people can buy it and sell it, whatever. Or even, you know, I was even thinking about um, now streamanity videos are not on the blockchain itself. The videos are not on the blockchain, not yet anyway. Um, that's a lot of data. We're not quite there yet, but the pay, the paywall is, right? And they have some security measures that make it difficult. It's not impossible to, you know, do a screen cap or, or stream the video um, and then, you know, go 
give it away elsewhere, but it's hard enough that most people don't do it. Right. So they have a paywall. You got to pay to watch them. So I post videos on there right? and I get whatever revenue in perpetuity for people buying those. But what if I say, you know what? I don't want to, I don't want to sit around. Maybe I make a thousand dollars a year from videos and I expect that to continue for several more years. And I'm like, I don't want to wait for that to trickle in. Let me sell my whole catalog of stream entity videos to Josh for 3000 bucks. And then yep. he'll get his money back in a couple of years and then he'll make more, but I get money up front, right? I'm going to sell my, my catalog and all those rights can transfer to you, right? Like there's, there's so many possibilities that just start to spring out from this yeah. combination of provable digital ownership with the monetization all in the same package. Those come as a package deal. You know what I mean? That's just, it's so, it's so beautiful. The, the microtransaction model is the uh, killer app. So what we're talking about here is just automated royalties. So you basically in the market, um, you could argue that even a company is a inefficiency in the market, like a firm or a corporation. Um, and anything that we can get closer to uh, the exchange between two individuals directly with the least amount of interference at the highest amount of velocity or speed uh, and with the... Um, the most return for each other, which is basically, we're describing a transaction which costs very little, right? It's very energy efficient, which is BSV. It's the world's most energy efficient system. It saves more trees than any bank could ever imagine. It's, it has output and throughput that's higher than any other system. Uh, so you can do in the, the same amount of energy spent, uh, you can do more transactions than anything else in the world. It's pretty good. So the idea is that um, we look at these micropayments and the royalty mechanism, uh, is an efficiency in the market because there's this whole idea of uh, artist collectives and um, actors uh, unions and um, uh, it doesn't matter, plumber unions, uh, any type of union and corporate agreements and IP and we can go on and on. All of these systems are basically just inefficiency in the market because you're unable at the time of transaction to be able to then send the value associated with this piece of uh, property. So uh, another, like a small example is I wrote uh, the Bitcoin white paper, you wrote it too. Uh, you helped with 30% of it, we agree on that. Every time someone reads that, they pay a dollar, you get 30 cents every time, no matter what. I watch a movie on Netflix, I pay per use, uh, per view. I pay $1 every time I watch the movie and every actor gets paid 10 cents yeah. every time instantly upfront. That is a market efficiency. What was happening before was months or years of contract negotiation. Uh, the rights are getting sent off to whoever. Uh, most of the time, the artists, the creators themselves don't even have rights to it, um, which is fine too, as long if that's what you want. But the idea is now you have more of a capability to earn directly from your property uh, instead of having it sort of, uh, you know, put out into the market and, and, and um, changed and mismanaged in certain yeah. ways, which ultimately just eats out of your pocket and it's less food on your table for your children. And it's less, uh, uh, it's more time you have to do things that are inefficient in order to keep up with the inefficiency of the market itself. So when you think uh, about driving market efficiency. Right. And think about how, you know, one of the huge gains in, in markets, in financial markets is the ability to move capital through not just space, but through time. So to borrow from the future or to take things from the past and, you know, and so to, to turn things that are illiquid, liquid and create markets around them, futures, options. So think about things like 
not only do you cut out middlemen, let's say with royalties, say you got a song going on Spotify and then Spotify reports yep. every month, how many listens, and then they pay the record label X amount. And then the record label distributes a percent to the artist. Imagine the artist has that song on Spotify and every click is an instant stream of half a penny or whatever it is to, to them. Now imagine they can say, I'm going to sell, you know what? I need some money right now. I'm going to sell 10% of the royalties to this one song. I'm going to issue, you know, 10 million song tokens for this song. And I'm going to sell a million of those. And when you hold those, you automatically get 10% of the royalties that I get when the songs come in streaming. And so yeah. you can move money through time. You can say, I want the money right now for a product I'm working on. And you take the law, you can sell future revenue streams. You can do all kinds of, yeah, it's funny you, you mentioned the firm being an inefficiency. And, I, and I'm a huge fan of uh, Ronald Coase. His, his paper on the theory of the firm is, is so good. And like anything in the market, when you solve for one inefficiency, you introduce potential others. And so that's kind of his theory of the firm is that firms exist because the cost, the transaction costs of doing business with people are high enough. You got to go search and find, you know, if I wanted to have a, a nobody that worked for me in a company where it was just me and I, and I, you know, outsourced everything, everything was peer to peer. Every time I needed somebody to do something for marketing, I would have to go to, through all the cost of searching. And then I had to go through the cost of, you know, getting them connected and giving them access to my stuff and then blah, blah, blah. So because you have these search costs, you centralize into a firm and bring most functions in-house, the core functions and reduces the search cost, but it introduces a new cost which is agency costs, right? That the, the, the fact that as the firm gets bigger, especially their entire departments, in my case, my, my engineering department, where I went out and found them and I hired them, but I don't know at any given time if they're being efficient because I don't know as much as they do about their specialization. Whereas if I was out there competitively shopping all the time, uh, theoretically, right? I could get somebody to come in and underbid them yeah, and be right. more efficient, but the cost of doing that, right? And so it's, it's more efficient than constant because the search cost, information costs are high, you centralize, but the, but the firm itself has a cost. There's a lot of loss, a lot of inefficiency bringing down, you know, the internet started this, but micropayments really accelerate it. The search cost yeah. and transaction cost. You don't have to bulk right. transactions together into one monthly lump. Okay, I'm going to make your monthly royalty payment because microtransactions are able to do it at a continuous stream, you get to eliminate that middleman that it was previously solving the inefficiency of transaction costs by centralizing. That inefficiency has been solved technically through micropayments and even on-chain data in some ways, it kind of re replaces your accounting department in some instances uh, with, yeah. with a, a ledger. It just, right. it blows things wide open. So I, this is rambly, but I'm gonna give you one final example that I just thought of with this is that I've seen the NBA, they smell danger. They're like, oh shit, right? Like these NFTs, we got to take the lead as a league so that we get the royalties and then we distribute some percentage of them to players. We got to do this. Right. Quick. Because otherwise, think about it with actors, NBA players, you know, you're in a movie and then the movie goes out. But not only that, there's a meme from the movie that gets created and gets shared every, if, if Leonardo DiCaprio got a, a fraction of a cent every time somebody was sharing, you know, the meme from him in Django Unchained or whatever that famous, yeah. like you think about those abilities and you can cut the production company right out of it or an NBA player. They're the one that does an amazing dunk. They make a highlight. They could package that up and sell that as a, you know, video clip and cut the league right out of it directly. Um, 
And I think that's so fascinating. I think you're going to see a lot of these. And some people might not want to. They might want to, you solve that for me. I'll just take a percentage of it, whatever. Like I'm not saying corporations will go away. But I think there's just something people, some people see it and there's like a mad dash going on to like, oh my God, this could be bad if we're the NBA (laughs) and the players can tokenize everything. I think, um, you know, while we have to be careful not to glorify the theory of, val- uh, you know, labor theory of value, like the amount, the, whoever does all the labor is creating all the value, right? That's not, that's not true. But I do see a world where we're going to have a very BTC core uh, versus BSV like scenario where these firms or big corporations are like competitive leagues uh, are like every team is its own league, so to speak. It's starting to allow for more, it's reducing the cost of change. We have things that aren't restricting. We have more competitive uh, scenarios in terms of like what terms the player is going to have. Um, I always thought like the cap, like, you know, the market cap of a team was really interesting. Like even before I understood like economics, uh, I remember playing like Madden when I was, you know, 13 and I was like, why the hell do I have a market cap on my team? This is bullshit. You know, I want to hire this guy. Um, and a lot of that dynamic is going to change. And the word agencies is really good because what's really happening is, is that we're able to just like more efficiently say, this is where the money should go when this thing happens. So we can just like really quickly switch up teams, work on other stuff. I think in general, people in Bitcoin still do not understand how a corporation, a limited liability entity and equity and Bitcoin tie together. Um, and I, I use the term adventure capitalist. I use it on uh, officially on my LinkedIn, even just as a fun little um, uh, troll, but I'm very serious about the term. It basically allows people who have talents to distribute themselves across teams and very quickly change their uh, orientation um, and maybe stay within a specialization, but quickly move and work with many different teams and perhaps own small amounts of equities on very many teams instead of large amounts of equity on single teams. And the major problem we have right now in equity and that, and that equity could and that equity could potentially be instantly liquid. They could sell it at any time, not have to wait for an exit. Yeah, of course. And it, and it could also be, uh, it could also be dividend generating, uh, potentially it could be a, a percentage of revenue, right? Everything you do and produce can give you money back in return in real time, right? You don't have to have large amounts of uh, time and energy and, and money and capital locked up as much anymore. I mean, there's, I mean, I'm not saying this isn't a thing. I just want to be completely, yep. a lot of people take this idea and they say I'm being a radical and that like, venture capitals will still exist. So, yeah, they will. They're just going to be more competitive. They're going to have to add more value and have more contribution to the uh, stakeholder model. It's going to be that, I, I personally believe that most investors are just evil in the sense that they're there to extract value as fast as possible. They're looking for a dividend as quickly as possible. I, I personally refuse to uh, raise debt or issue more shares for the sake of capital. I believe in uh, creating a company that has a return on the service that it offers. It offers a service that can provide uh, enough people a solution and they'll pay me for that. And that's that's where well, my focus hold is. Hold on a second. And, and a lot of people don't don't understand this. Did you just say that profit seeking was evil? Uh, I didn't say that. I said that I believe that most uh, investors have a very short, uh, uh, they are very uh, looking for quick gratification in terms of their capital allocation. A capitalist is somebody who hoards money and gives money. I can I can live with that. And an entrepreneur is somebody who takes that money and deploys it in an efficient way for uh, that offers a good for people, as many people as possible, uh, and, and return for some kind of profit. And then they distribute that profit 
to the people who do the work accordingly, right? And then standard of living increases. The more that can happen, so the velocity, the velocity, the, the, the sort of volume, the, the greater market cap that can go on around that, whether you're making cars or carpets or whatever, uh, the more, the better off everyone is. It's not even really about the pure money that I can make. It's about like, I can have a way more sustainable uh, uh, quality of life if I'm able to build a sustainable business or service that I, actually does that in organic fashion. You know, I, I feel, I feel your vibe for sure. Uh, I'm just, the language is a little bit loose sometimes. So I've debated, uh, I debated Dean a little bit on this. I debated Jack Lou a little bit on this because I get what all you guys are saying. I think I agree with it. You sometimes use language that I think is a little bit paints with a broader brush than necessary. But the, I, I think what I hear you saying is, I don't know where the, where the evil part comes from, except for there are some reasons that some people may be evil that don't have to do with business model, but you don't like the, t- the time horizon of a typical venture capitalist. You see as something that is likely to produce outcomes for you, the entrepreneur, your employees, and even the consumers that are much shittier. If their goal is get me to that seven to 10 year exit as fast as possible with the highest valuation possible, that's all I care about that that's going to have a kind of self-destructive, you know, go on a, go on a cocaine bender and, and, you know, sell when you're at your peak and then you're going to fucking crash or you're going to just never become what you could become. It's not as sustainable. It doesn't do as, as much impact. You don't share that same time horizon. Your time horizon isn't seven to 10 years. It's a, a slow build over 20, 30, hundred, whatever, multi-generation. And you think that applying that VC time horizon to the kind of businesses that are now possible with, you know, with micropayments and all this stuff is going to be uh, counterproductive. It's going to be self-destructive. It's going to, it's going to hurt the culture of the company. Let's, so let's, let's um, take it. Let's just take it a different angle. The okay. uh, it's, it's it, the evil investor is uh, a little bit of uh, just a meme itself. I, I'm also an evil investor. I've invested in things. The idea though here is that uh, oftentimes uh in a, in a uh, let's just call it the corporation or the firm. We're using the word the firm today. I, I don't know where that came from. I guess uh, uh, some guy, uh, some Ronald, academic. Ronald Coase. Go read the theory of the firm by Ronald Coase. I'm sure I've I'm sure I've read it. Uh, he's indirectly uh, accredited for this. But I I'm I guess what I'm saying is the the idea of the model of a business is I'm gonna I'm a person. I'm gonna uh, give this person something and we exchange right. When you introduce uh, an investor and they're, uh, and they're uh, holding, um, let's say they're holding really big bags. They own, let's say, 51% of your company. I'm just using mm-hmm. funny yeah. examples. This does yeah. not apply always, et cetera. I don't want to be extreme. For a typical venture bank company, it'll be at least that much by the time you get to an exit. Okay, yeah. sure. Sounds good. I, I, I wouldn't know because I would never do that. Uh, but uh, the point is that, the, uh, that this, this situation could arise and it adds conflict and inefficiencies to your service to that specific uh, person or economy or community, because you're actually trying to, you're trying to uh, uh, abide by or, or uh, um, please the investor at 51%, uh, uh, you know, that's a pretty large um, burden as a business to make sure that you're always um, offering the investor the constant um, sort of confidence they need in order to supply you with the capital that you took very quickly. Um, and it's, so the information is distorted between the customer and the business. Yep. Um, because you did take that, you are now looking at uh, operating very inefficiently, inefficiently, having higher costs, uh, maybe doing things that 
are very short term because you can afford to do that, but ultimately just going to result in you having less ownership and being, you're the person responsible of the idea and the value that's provided to the customer. The less you have of that, um, the less you're likely you're going to offer a long-term uh, healthy service to the customer. So it's like, really, if I'm a VC, I'm looking at like, I want like a million companies with 1%, not two with, you know, 50%. And I, and I'm, and I'm sure that is a strategy of some VCs. Um, but I, I think generally speaking, the, the investor model uh, where the entrepreneurs are constantly looking to uh, issue more shares and raise more debt, uh, sort of a cancerous part of this concept we call capitalism. Uh, we, can, we can provide good services and build healthy businesses um, that don't sort of have this nasty lump on them that's, that this, it's, it's these other guys extracting values. Because as soon as you start doing really good as a company, uh, you're, you know, you're reinvesting, you, you know as the entrepreneur where you should take this, who deserves what, what customers are, are really adding a lot of value to you. That, that, that's a part of being in a business is a customer adds value. And uh, they might be looking to take out dividends or they wanna you know, uh, inflate the share uh, uh, shares. Or, and, and those conflicts arise. And, and ultimately having capital is a necessary part of running a business. I, I'm not uh, a delusional at all. I'm not in denial of a venture capitalist or an investor. They have a place. Um, I do think that generally that idea has been like really inflated and ultimately, it's like what, what I saw when I did consulting myself was that a lot of entrepreneurs would come to us and basically be like, hey, I need a million dollars for my idea when they could easily be making that idea now yeah. and making their first $1 in profit to at least sort of have further market validation rather than try to get investor validation, which yeah. is really uh, the problem I'm trying to point out. Yeah, no, and it's it's so right. So there's so many reasons too that the VC is a, is a very important and pretty awesome model in the market, but its role in a, in a healthy market, I think is a pretty small one. It's pretty rare. There's not very many companies for which the VC model is the ideal model, but when there is one, it's, it's really great. It's awesome that it's there. I think the reason it's so expansive is a couple one, one, the, the tax incentives and the uh, monetary policy um, dramatically over incentivizes get putting a shit ton of money into things that have potential for humongous wins, right? So like it changes the risk, um, the risk calculation. If you got easy money printing and you're getting, there's fewer and fewer places that can keep up with inflation or give you returns. You got to start taking bigger and bigger swings. You got all this money sloshing around from, you know, institutional right. funds like the endowment at Yale or whatever. And they're like, we need more and more of our money to go into something that has a chance of going a thousand X because we can't keep up with, you know, we can't get enough return elsewhere. So it's distorted the market. And then also just sort of in the popular consciousness, some of the big tech companies that have been successful. And, and there's a huge reaction against this now. I think we're trending in the opposite direction. But for a long time, during, the, during most of the 2000s, especially, entrepreneurs like you, they were like, like you said, oh, I have this idea. First thing I need is a million dollars. And it's like, no, that's the last thing you need. Once, once your idea is kicking ass, and you can see how a million dollars would make it kick ass 10 times faster and it's worth exactly. the price you're going to pay for yep. that. Okay. Now yep. you can, now you can consider it, but you don't, you don't need it to start with. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting because I think, um, I, I think you mentioned, uh, oh, I'm totally blanking. What did you mention that I was going to, that I want I really wanted to comment on, on VC. Well, I'll, just, I'll add, I'll, I'll add a piece to this. You know, I Go think ahead. the, um, 
I think that generally speaking, again, we're being very general. There is definitely exceptions and everything is we have, um, we have to increasingly go for the home run hit or the grand slam as people in general, because these systems are playing favors with certain types of companies, certain types of business model. Look at the whole green energy scam. I mean, this is, this is like, this is worse than Enron. I mean, they've got, they're just, you know, sticking solar panels up people's asses these days. And they all, it's all based on a credit sheet and extorting money from you who's doing something productive and then giving it to somebody else. It's yep. all taking away from one energy source and then giving it some favor to another. I mean, look, that's Elon Musk's whole business model. His whole career is based off this idea. So it's like, that's just, to me, the, the biggest problem. And yeah. the less that we're willing to take these short-term gratifications and really just focus on, like, it, it doesn't mean you shouldn't make money today. It doesn't mean you have to think about 100 years. Every entrepreneur has to think about tomorrow and the, uh, the bowl of soup they have to eat and how they get it in the beginning stages. It just means have some kind of concept of this, uh, uh, let's call it like an information cycle or a feedback loop with your actual customer with yeah. the actual person that's getting the end good. And if we, if it's, it's just like uh, the money is just measuring how on point you are in terms of a value added service. It's yep. not what's gonna actually give you wealth. What's gonna give you wealth is when you have a company that's so successful that like the world can't live without it because it has the best cookies ever made. You know, these are, these are cookies that make you grow seven feet tall and, and uh, uh, jump 10 feet high. Uh, that that's what's going to be helpful. Uh, not, not like just stuffing these cookies full of, of soy and, and calling them good because the government said, if you do that, they're going to give you, uh, you know, an extra million bucks. Yeah. Uh, so they can keep running their agenda. That's Which is, like, I know that's a ridiculous example. That's, that's like how all these things are. No, that's working. not that's ridiculous like electric at all. Car energy, you know, no, I, I want literally what they're doing. I, I had a meeting with a very, very, very prominent, very well-known Silicon Valley name and, and he was asking me about my company. He's like, so what about, you know, you should, you should try to sell this to the government, get government contracts. And I'm like, that's not what I'm interested in. He's like, well, aren't you trying to make money? And I'm like, yeah. There you have it. I want venture capitalism I want in a nutshell. Created value and subsidies. To create value means you take a resource that on the market is valued at X. You do something to it and you sell it for a higher price. The difference between what you paid and what you got, that's how much value you created. If I take a tin can for a dollar, I carve it into some art, I sell it for $2, whatever, you know, minus my labor time, I have created, people now value that a dollar more than they did before. I've created that value. With a subsidized company, government is taking money from people at gunpoint that they valued more. They would have spent it on something different. So you know by their actions that, because they didn't give it voluntarily, they valued something else more. They take that, spend it on resources at why at a hundred bucks, turn around, sell those resources for 90 bucks, right? They're losing money. That means that whatever you did to those resources, you destroyed value. They are now worth less. Now that having been said, if you remove the government part from the equation, there are times where you may want to take that risk, where you may want to say in the near term, I'm going to be losing money because I can see a, a place where I will get to money. So maybe I've got some experimental thing and first nobody wants to buy it. They don't trust it. And so I'm going to lose money on every unit I sell. But once they start to see, and each time I'm learning more and I'm making the product better, eventually it will be such a huge return that I'll start making money, right? Like people lost money mining Bitcoin at first, right? They were like, right. 
they were doing it because they they were investing in what they saw in the future, right? So, and that's kind of where the venture right. thing comes in. But I but I love this is what I forgot to 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 get to. I love what you said about the relationship between the company and the customer and that direct accountability. Sometimes for the sake of research and development or long-term, it's, it's worth taking a risk to remove that direct relationship and say, I'm not going to worry about making money from customers for some period of time while I'm burning money trying to do something, right? But that is very, very dangerous. I remember when I, when I launched my first company, Praxis, which is a college alternative, the, the, the inspiration came when I was in college myself. I remember having this moment where I felt like none of these professors give a shit if I learn if I get a job after this, if I gain yeah. any value from this at all. And I thought- You're just a survey to them. They yeah, just want you to like, like so fulfill the their thesis. college treats me like a piece of shit. They're like, you give us money. You stop parking there. We'll give you a ticket. You buy this textbook and only this one. You, And I was like, wait a minute. I'm the customer. And I remember having this epiphany where I thought healthcare and higher education are the two experiences in my life where the service provider- doesn't give a shit about the quality of service I receive Correct. because they don't get paid directly by me. If I quit the university or if I quit a professor's class, his pay doesn't drop at all. He has no direct accountability to the customer. I'm not his customer. The customer is the bureaucracy and their customer is the government who issues all these loans and grants, which is why the student isn't treated like a customer because they're not a customer. And I remember when I had that epiphany as a college student, years later when I launched Praxis, and I had worked in nonprofits too. I thought I want Praxis to be a for-profit company. It would have been way easier for me to make it a nonprofit. I was already in the world of nonprofit fundraising. I had a great network of millionaires and even some billionaires who liked me. I could have easily raised 10 million bucks as a nonprofit. You don't even have to give away equity. You just raise the money and then you just spend it, you know, to, to get Crazy. this thing launched. But I knew if I was going to make something that really created value for people, that was a better alternative than college. I'd worked in nonprofits and they have too delayed of a feedback loop. You raise money from one group and they give it to you because they want to feel good and be charitable. You take that money and you spend it on a different group. Say you put on educational seminars to teach people about Bitcoin. And I'm not saying nonprofits are bad, but there's a reason they can't produce nearly as much value as for-profits. There's no accountability. If you put on a seminar for free as a nonprofit and everybody hates it and don't, doesn't gain anything, you have no way of knowing because if you take pictures of them and they look nice and happy, and then you go show those to the donors, the donors will keep giving you money. There's not a good enough feedback loop. It would take a long time of shitty Correct. performance for the donors to stop giving. So I, I had that realization. I wanted to be directly accountable to the customer and start as a for-profit. I have to sell you on parting with your money to go through my program. And every time you leave or quit or stop paying or don't do it, I feel it instantly directly. And I'll go out of business really quick. If I don't do that, I'm, it's easier for me to sell some old guy with money on the ephemeral value of what I'm doing than it is to convince a customer to part with their money, a young person who's frugal, right? And so I wanted that accountability. In, in venture capital, it's similar. What you're doing is you're introducing an intermediary. It doesn't ruin the business necessarily, but it introduces a huge risk that you will never create real value in the world because- Yeah, correct. Is when, you, when you're losing money, who's your customer? Well, your customer is sort of your customer. There's an overlap between what VCs want and what customers want, but your real customer is your VC because you got to get to that next round. So whatever they want, they happen to want a lot of the same things that customers do. They want to see that you're getting more customers, that your unit economics are starting to look good, that your growth rate is good. As long as you can prove those, you're winning. 
but those only overlap somewhat with what customers value. They overlap, but not perfectly. And the degree of to that gap is what you're saying is like, I don't want that. I want that direct instant accountability. So that was a really long tirade to just- my, my Well, this goes back to the NFTs. We can circle back. It's like, I'm an artist. I create my first sketch. I make it a thing, a digital item. Someone pays one penny for it. I should try to make another and sell it for two pennies. That's a direct feedback loop. And the function of a business or any type of a business is just a way of saying it's a, a group of creators. And the, the, the primary uh, function is to produce uh, for consumption, not speculation. So there is, so, there is some speculation involved in business, of course. You need to understand future needs and so on. But it's a subset of the business function. And really, when a business becomes overly speculative, it starts to extract value from the customer without providing the value in return anymore. And eventually, the customer will awake from this and leave that service for somebody who does provide more direct value in a non-speculative manner. So there's, it's, it's a balance of understanding uh, future needs and where things might go. That's right, when Twitch started, we only had 10 users, right, or whatever. Uh, and now we have 40,000 and we hope to have uh, 4 billion someday. But every single customer that comes on today, uh, we have a feedback loop in the sense that they're going to actually create this transaction that pays us a penny. So we understand that like, well, this thing is happening. I have some measure of like where this should be going. How do I enhance that experience? Uh, what problems are they having that I can go ahead and enhance that experience? What is this actually solving a problem for them that to the extent that they come back and use it in the way that we assumed? Uh, and so the feedback loops are super important and they've been distorted uh, just like the government injecting money in the uh, supply of the economy, that's like a big macro version. The same concept happens with the venture capitalists. Who do you, where do you think they're getting their money? Who do you think is getting the money? Tons of venture capitalists themselves are, or these venture capitalist companies, uh, VC groups, they're getting money from the federal government. So like, it's all just really distorted at this point. And we've become overly speculative in the world of entrepreneurship and we need to be more focused on the consumption and value creation for the customer. So I am uh, uh, drastically on the side of the customer. I'm every day I'm asking my customers when I see a complaint, I contact them personally. I, I, I don't care if I'm laying on the couch at two in the morning, I wake up at five in the morning or it's a, and I'm eating my sandwich at lunch and I see a problem. I approach the customer directly and I find out what that problem was and how I can make it better. This just happened this week with, uh, some uh, a problem with uh, Ch Twitch chat, uh, which costs $10. So people have to pay for it, right? It's not a free product. Somebody was unhappy because they added 50 people to it and it was running slow. So I went ahead and I contacted them. I could have been angry. I could have been insulted, but I wasn't. They pay for this product and I want to give them a good service so that I can have them tell their friend and onboard their friend to this chat and they can pay for that service too. And this all is compounding interest in the long term. If I could just say, well, you know, I need $100,000 to solve that problem. Go to a, an investor. This would work. I got investors calling me. I, I can't even keep up. And they're saying, oh, you know, this is such a great concept. I love what you're doing. I'm saying, yeah, thank you. But I'm looking for investors who can actually help me solve these problems for my customers. Not I don't just need your money alone. I, I do. I, we may need money at times, right, to grow a company. Uh, but it should be based off of the actual value creation in the consumption of the customer, not over pure speculation that someone might need this thing in years to come 
for years to go. So I'm just very critical of the model. Uh, however, uh, it doesn't mean that investors shouldn't exist or don't serve a purpose. Again, just to be very clear. Yeah. Because in the, the originally when I wrote these types of things, I, I did some blog posts related to this. Uh, a, there was a very uh, negative reaction. I mean, I, I really had a lot of pe more people than I expected uh, came at me in, in a sense of like, they felt threatened or the things I was saying were ridiculous. And so I, I tried to over time uh, further elaborate on what I mean. And I think the best way for me to do that is just demonstrate it through my philosophy, yeah. uh, which is uh, how I build my company. Uh, and if it doesn't work, then everyone else can learn from that. Uh, Cause that's what entrepreneurship should offer is that, um, that your mistakes should be valuable to other people participating in that market so that things improve faster over time. So, well, and, and, you know, it's the venture capital world is just way out of hand for, for all the same reasons that, you know, whatever, uh, the housing market, or when, again, too much money going out there, people have to chase the big swings. It's just, it's, it's overheated. And for you, like, there's nothing, there's no point in saying, it's worth thinking carefully about whether venture capital applies or not. That's stupid. It'd be like, thank you. Screw you should be my like, it's, it, it's, it's, easier, like, it's easier to say it's like marketing. And yeah. what happens is if I say it's really bad and I hate it, then I'm going to get a couple good guys that understand what I'm looking for yeah. in terms of an investor. And, no, like gonna, with crash, and this has happened with, with my company crash, you know, which is about, you know, applying to jobs in a different way. Our homepage is burn your resume. And I say that over and over Perfect. and over again. And if I'm not like, well, you know, there are times where you have to upload a resume, but you should also supplement. No, like that's not interesting to anybody. I'm making no, a point no. here, right? Yeah, it's funny. The, um, you know, the thing that's taken over Silicon Valley in the last probably 15 years, maybe a little bit longer, the lean startup model, you know, like took off and it's gotten more and more popular. And what's funny about the lean startup model is it's logical because the whole thing, the whole insight was, hey, you used to have to raise venture capital because if you wanted to build anything with computers, you needed like a, a ton of servers. And if you're like some college kid, you can't afford it. You need like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, the costs have come down so much that it's like the lean startup thing is like, well, you can start small, you can pivot. And, you know, um, one of a venture capitalists that I really like uh, always, you know, said 500,000 is the new 5 million. You used to need 5 million to go start something new. Now you only need 500,000. But the inevitable direction and conclusion, all these costs coming down, and especially with the introduction of micropayments, zero is the new 500,000. You don't need any venture capital and especially the ability to sell future revenue streams. So say Twitch gets to a point where they're like, we like where this is going, but we can wait and collect this money that we think we're going to bring in over the next two years, but we need to hire engineers now and we think we can go faster. So instead of giving up control by saying, we'll give away 20% of the company and, and a board seat or 50% or whatever, you can sure, say, right. we will sell a future revenue stream. And once you get back your initial investment plus X percent, now you're done and you have no ownership. It's just, it's right. like earning interest. It's like putting your money somewhere more productive than a savings account or a bond market or whatever, however much you know, risk adjustment you want. But the ability to, for people, if they need money faster than they're earning it, to do it in a way that's a little different than giving away equity and even a little different than raising debt and having to pay interest rates on that. It's, it's future, future revenue streams. Like it just, the optionality is amazing. Yeah, that's what matters. We have choices now. Um, we don't have to default into the same thing over and over and over. We can have fa faster iterations and uh, on business models where we can start to learn a little bit more rapidly because we can have a we can have a flappy bird game that makes a million dollars using micropayments 
um, instead of like selling ads. That's a well. Next time we talk, we can talk about oh things like advertising and, and and how that model is going to be affected by this. And the company just who like, made the game gets revenue, and maybe a percent goes to the person who drew right. the illustration for the exactly. bird, and a percent exactly. goes to the person who exactly. made the music. And every time someone buys a new item, it's one penny, and those percentage. Yeah, I mean, Josh, every, we got, every we bring it home. Give me, is, give me, Go ahead. I'll leave you with this. Every angry bird in the future is an NFT that you might be able to own. And uh, I, I believe that your ideas and your creations, whether it's online or in physical world, are your property as nature intended. And I'm committed to trying to build, I am committed to building services and companies and platforms that enable more people to have control over their property and help generally more people with that concept itself. So it, that's my business mind. It's where I'm at. I'm looking at doing things that are homegrown, organic, and allow for people to have lots of upside in their sort of early risk-taking and creations, whether that's just drawing a stupid meme or that's in reinventing the wheel. It doesn't really matter to me. It's, it's about giving people opportunities. And the more people, opportunity you have, the more opportunity I have. That's what I, that's what I want to see in the future. Dude, it, I, when we were talking about basketball, I just realized this, Josh, we need to start a three on three league where every, and we, and we just put a little chip or something in the ball or in the hoop. Every time a player makes a bucket, they get like two cents or a dollar or whatever it is. And, <laughs> and uh, people pay to watch the game and you're literally earning there you go. as, as you play for, <laughs> I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what would happen. What kind of incentive? You better be buying my shots. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, no dude. I'm, <laughs> I want to buy the rights to every bucket that you make. Hey, we should turn this video into a conversation about NFTs and an NFT. We can sell it to somebody. They can, they can get all the future revenues from it. You know, we'll, we'll figure something out. Make us an offer. Anyone watching this, make us an offer. We'll seriously consider it. I, I'm, I'm very interested in doing that. I love it, man. Josh, thanks so much for yeah. taking the time. It was great to chat as always. Thank you very much.